Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code POLITICAL. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for July 18th, 2014, the So Sue Me edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor at large of Slate here in Washington, You know, it should be called the So Fire Me. <laughs> so make me leave. I so let me quit. I didn't fire. I wasn't fired. You fired I yourself. Quit. I fired myself. That's true. Yes. Or you didn't really fire yourself. You you kicked yourself sideways. Yes. Or downstairs. Down, I think downstairs would be the term. I'm no longer the editor of Slate. Julia Turner, host of the Culture Fest, co-host of the Cult Fest, is now the editor-in-chief of Slate. That is wonderful news. And I... Um, I'm not anymore as of Monday, but I'm still on the GabFest. I still will be helping Slate out. Editor-at-large is this title they make up when they have no idea what you're going to do. So, And then you can do whatever still, you choose to do. But they still send me a paycheck, at least for, at least for now. <laughs> but I'm, I'm still here. And, and one of my conditions of, of departure was that we had to keep doing the GabFest. So, so Emily Bazelon in New Haven. Hello, Emily Bazelon, Slate Senior Editor, agreed to continue. Hello, and John Dickerson, yes. Slate's Chief Political Correspondent. Here in Washington, hello, John. Hello, David. Also agreed to continue. Can you please confirm? This that you is agreed all to confirmed. We all conti- We all agreed. It was not. It was the easiest decision we've ever made. Yeah, we were surprised you even asked. It was so easy. How does it feel not to have to be obedient to me anymore? We were never ever obedient to you obedient in the first place. I'm trying to remember that. <laughs> What's so funny is people would write in letters in our defense over the years at times and saying, you know, Plots, you're totally taking advantage of the power relationship because of your job. And I thought that was very, very kind of them. There was also a certain subset of people who thought, because I was so obedient to Emily, because she's senior editor and I was editor, that she was <laughs> my boss rather than me being Well, she is boss. the boss of all of us in a sense. Exactly. No, please. That's the reply. Malarkey. So this week, we actually have a show. Our first topic will be John Boehner's plot to file a lawsuit against President Obama. And, and maybe impeach him, too. Who knows what could happen? Then, Elizabeth Warren's latest flirtation with national fame. Is she going to run for president? And then a mom leaves a nine-year-old at a playground. South Carolina arrests her, throws her kid into foster care. We will fulminate. And in Slate Plus, it's going to be all about me. We're going to do a special segment about me, about how I'm no longer the editor of Slate. So John and, and Emily. And we won't even make him lie down on a couch. I can lie down on a couch if you want. There's no couch. I'm unemployed. I can do whatever I want. It's <laughs> the floor. So that's for Slate Plus. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up for Slate Plus. Oh, yeah, but then who will they email to get the best deal I'm possible? Still, my email address is still there. Yeah, I will but you, still... have, you don't have the power to give them the best deal possible. Your deal's going to be lame. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, you will pay extra if you get a deal through me now. Oh, man. See, already the respect is gone. In 
America, when you're angry and you don't have any other ideas, you sue somebody. And that is House Speaker John Boehner's idea, apparently. He's promising a lawsuit against the president. Boehner and his House Republican caucus plan to pass legislation in the House. And Emily, hopefully, or John, one of you is going to explain what this means, that would authorize the House to sue the president, claiming he overstepped his constitutional authority in a particular case where he delayed a provision of Obamacare. Let's set aside the hilarity of the Republicans suing President Obama because he delayed part of Obamacare, a law they have tried to get rid of. The fact that he delayed it seemed to be in favor of what they wanted. But what is going on? Are we on the road to impeachment, John Dickerson? We're not on the road to impeachment. Some people think that John Boehner did this as an off-ramp to try to tamp down on the calls for impeachment, which uh, some of the— Appeasing impeachment. Yeah. I mean, basically, because he knows it would be—impeachment would be—there are two things at stake here. One is there is a genuine anger on the right about the president overreaching. And some of it is—and Emily can speak to this when we get to it—but some of it has a basis maybe in fact. Some of it is people are angry that the president goes around saying things like, I have a pen and a phone, which seems to me the least threatening thing in the world. So all there's lots and lots and lots of theater that's a part of this. But there is this genuine anger that he kind of gets to do what he wants. And the big part of that is a part of the, the health care law when he basically delayed the business mandate for the law that was passed. Anyway, we can talk about the merits of that. But that anger is so hot in some places that it gets out of control. And what Boehner, in part, was trying to do here is channel it into something that might be a plausible instrument instead of the insane impeachment idea, which would get perhaps so out of hand that it would end up costing Republicans politically. So, Emily, or maybe John, because you you also understand these things better. I don't understand what the House would do to pass something that would authorize them to sue. The House can't pass a law because the president would have to sign it. The Senate would have to pass it. So what are they doing? Well, any House member can just go ahead and sue. I mean, he will not have – he or she will not have standing and the suit is going to get thrown out. But that's like – after you sue, then the lawsuit gets thrown out for that and two other reasons. But I think if the House passes a resolution authorizing the lawsuit, that makes it seem like something they're all ganging up and doing together. Maybe they can create some group just for the purposes of bringing the lawsuit that represents all of them. So can I ask you a question about standing, Emily, which is in the DOMA case, uh, when the president decided not to enforce DOMA, didn't the Supreme Court in taking that case recognize that the House had some kind of standing and couldn't yes. they come in through that avenue? Explain that a little. Well, so I just different. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Let's see. This is in the weeds. But here I go. Yeah. So the Obama administration opted not to defend DOMA in court and then got out of the way and a group called itself the Bipartisan Legal Advisory Group or something, BLAG, formed and they defended Obamacare <laughs> instead. And it was called that. This is- Blag. BGL. Yeah, Congressional Bipartisan Legal Advisory Group. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I got like four out yeah, of yeah. five of those words in there. So they had to make an argument that they could defend the law instead of the executive himself. I did not actually think the Supreme Court's decision to allow that standing made a whole lot of sense. But I am theoretically in favor of granting standing in cases like this because I don't like the idea that laws don't get defended in court when they have been democratically passed, even if I disagree with that law. So I was glad that someone got to stand up at the Supreme Court. It was Paul Clement arguing for B. Lag and put out all the arguments there, which then, of course, lost. But that is not the same as does Congress have standing to sue the president. 
BLAG was not suing the president. BLAG was defending on an appeal in a case that had already been brought. And in that case, the Obama administration had actually defended DOMA in the lower court. So it was just I know that it sounds like technical and irritating, but from a legal standpoint, they are not very related to each other. So, all right, let's go to the what are the three reasons why if the House passes a resolution, they, the majority of House members say we want to sue the president. Why is this lawsuit likely to go nowhere, Emily? Well, first of all, standing, usually when members of Congress say they don't like something the executive is doing in court, the Supreme Court says, sorry, you don't have a particularized injury that we can redress. That's the standard for standing. Whether the you have an injury, it was harm to you and the court can actually do something about it. So we don't have an, a conception in this country of standing where it's like, I just think Obamacare should have gone into effect earlier. That's not good enough. The second thing is that the Supreme Court doesn't like to get involved in disputes between the executive and the legislative branches. That is something called the political question doctrine, where they basically say, this isn't really a legal dispute. This is between you guys. It's a policy dispute about how a law is being interpreted or how to enforce a law. And generally, we are go away. We don't want to talk to you about this. And then the third, perhaps most substantive and reason wait, can, is – Sorry that, to interrupt you there, Emily. And, no, it's okay. and, the, and the second sentence of that is if you do not like what the president is doing, you may impeach him. Well, or the second sentence is that you can overturn – repeal this law. You have other avenues available to you. So you might remember years ago there was a big fight over the line item veto and whether that had taken away too much power from – Congress, right? And somebody sued, maybe Senator Byrd, and he lost because of the political question doctrine. I can't remember whether he had standing or not. Anyway, so that's that. And the third issue, which I think is the most kind of meaty, is that, yes, it is true that the president has a constitutional duty to faithfully execute the laws, but the courts have not been sticklers about you know, every single deadline of every law being met along the way. There's a lot of case law that says the executive branch has to have some kind of wiggle room and discretion to, you know, deal with reality. And there are all kinds of deadlines that for issuing regulations that federal agencies just blow right by because they just don't have the capacity to get it done. It's just too complicated and it takes them too long. And so this seems to be maybe at the edges or maybe not of that spectrum. It would be easy enough for the administration if this ever made it to court to prove that things were hairy enough that they had to suspend I mean, the collapse of healthcare.gov, even though, by the way, this happened before that collapsed, but they could say it was all complex enough that that suspending the employer mandate, that there was sufficient reason within their discretion to do that. But I wanted to ask you a question, Emily. I mean, the injury here that they say gives them a collective case as as a body of Congress is that the president has stepped on their legislative power. And that this screws up the political accountability, which I think I know what the answer to this is. But the argument would go that if the president can just muck around with laws, then voters don't really know which body to To penalize, to blame. You know, let's say this were a law that worked out differently and the president just decided to change it and and people were angry. They couldn't. They might punish the legislators, but it wasn't the it wasn't the legislators who did this to the law. And so because the president's getting in the way of that political accountability, that's a harm here. But doesn't this happen with every law all the time, John? I mean, if you think about marijuana laws, the the federal government just basically has made a decision that we're there, even though there are federal laws in the books about marijuana, the federal government is basically not enforcing a lot of the marijuana laws. There are entire states where they don't enforce them at all. Doesn't this happen 
so frequently that it's that it's hard to claim that this is a particular case that right. deserves, they, they, deserves scrutiny. They'd have to say there was a special harm here that was caused because I think you're right. It does happen. And also it seems to me another argument would be if they didn't like what he did, they could have passed legislation. I mean they're not they're not without weapon rate. Right. Make him veto. Yeah. But do, do you guys have no – Can we go back to marijuana for a second because I think it matters Always here. So you, marijuana – What? Nothing. Marijuana arguably would have been the more straightforward lawsuit, right? He's letting the whole country go to pot, so to speak. And why not process, Why not bring the suit over that? They didn't like my little pun. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I never Somebody that, out there was... on a treadmill just crashed as a result of that pun. <laughs> Sorry, whoever you are. So that seems more obvious, except that there's another related body of law that makes it really clear that executive branches have a lot of discretion over how to prosecute and enforce the law. And when you think about it, while it seems weird that the attorney general could just say, oh, go ahead, Colorado, federal law doesn't apply here. I'm announcing that ahead of time. There's always selective enforcement of laws, right? The exec, the president can never enforce all the laws to their hilt because we would all be in, in jail or in court. And so it's very hard, again, to know where the principle kind of swallows the reality of, the, of, of life in here. I do find myself a little bit ambivalent about all of this because there is an executive branch creep that is going on in, in this country, partly – because I guess the Supreme Court has allowed the executive to do more. So the, so the, well, the, most the, of it is Congress. Is but, also, but then, yes, finally, Congress is a mess. But so, so there's something rich in Congress, which doesn't do anything standing up there and blaming the president for grabbing too much authority because, of course, the Congress itself won't do anything. But as somebody who is alarmed about our tendency towards executive dictatorship, I welcome the chance to have a conversation about this. Right. And then I think the problem is, what's your theory of executive overcreep? Are you suspicious of every single executive order the president signs every time the president announces he's not going to do something which is not straight up in line with existing law? Or do you see differences between, for example, you know, letting the NSA spy on everyone, letting the CIA torture people, rendition? Is that a different kind of executive overreach, the, you know, sending troops into Libya? versus delaying the implementation of Obamacare. Now, you might think that delaying the implementation of Obamacare is worse for some reason, but I feel like we don't have a particular... I don't have a good... I mean, I know which of those things bother me more, but I'm not very good on the scale of imagining the executive office figuring out what I should actually care about. I think what you're saying, Emily, which makes sense to me, which is that if you actually drew up what is the gravest overreach of the president... Healthcare probably wouldn't be up there. I mean, you could imagine. So, for example, deciding not to deport the children of undocumented workers would also be another thing that they could have brought as a bill of particular or or your Libya examples, maybe even better. If you were arguing this purely on usurpation of power grounds. Now, they're they're not exactly they're they're doing failure to enforce the law grounds, which is slightly different. But we also have to talk about the politics of this, of course, is not only is this John Boehner in writing why he's doing this. 
lumped in all kinds of things into this suit, saying basically the pre- talking about taxes and regulation and how the president acting on a whim uh, makes causes uncertainty that ruins the economy. He basically lumped everything on this suit. But then when you look at the suit, it's pretty narrow. It's just about the enforcement of the uh, of the employer mandate. The benefit, though, of doing it on health care is maybe a that's where they have the strongest argument. But B, it also reanimates something that as a political matter builds on top, you know, combines with, I should say, this anger in the conservative ranks about the president's imperialism on an issue that they're already pretty exercised about. And C, David Rivkin, who is one of the main lawyers behind this suit on Boehner's side, was one of the people who crafted the Obamacare lawsuit that went to the Supreme Court. And so he has a track record of making fairly I would say, out there legal arguments, but that then attract, lo and behold, four Supreme Court votes. And so I think on the right, there's this feeling of, hey, this sounds implausible to you. Well, you know what? You were wrong the last time, or at least like you were barely right. So watch out. Let's just, because it's uh, for giggles, talk about this impeachment question, because Sarah Palin is speaking out forcefully for impeachment, which I suppose is a negative signal about the actual possibility of it happening. But there remains a significant constituency on the right, which says they want to impeach the president, as there was during the late Bush years of liberals on the left who wanted to impeach George W. Bush, as there was in the Clinton years where they actually did (laughs) impeach Bill Clinton. Is this just now a feature of our political debate? Because it was done once to Clinton that people think like this is a thing we can now discuss? Or do you think it is an actual, genuine threat? No, it's not an actual genuine threat. It's a why, John? Because it's just such a waste of it's time. It's a waste. I mean, when Sarah Palin is advocate, when Sarah Palin is advocating it, you know you have moved to the thinnest crust of the farthest crust, and you look at that would be the edge of the pizza. She yeah. is from Alaska. Yeah, which is this this isn't the, the edge of the pizza. Crust. This is the edge of the pan that you cook the pizza on. You know, and evidence of that is nobody who's running for office in any contested Senate race supports it. John Boehner doesn't support it. Mitch McConnell doesn't support it. Even Dick Cheney thinks it's a dumb idea. So, and Sarah Palin, you know, she's a celebrity in a clownish kind of way. A lot of people think the Republican Party is just totally whipsawed by its most conservative radical elements, and it's not even cracking into that. So that shows you how far off it is. And I think also beyond her, I think the the challenge for Republicans is that they're asking to be given control of the entire Congress, and they're on their way to perhaps perhaps doing that. And just like when Nancy Pelosi was arguing for why she should take the speakership during the Bush administration, and when she said, oh, we're going to launch you know, investigations, and maybe even in, uh, impeachment was discussed, there were a lot of Democrats who said, ridiculous, no, our job is to come in and show we can govern and do things and, and affect change in people's lives that, you know, actually helps them or at least deals with some of these intractable issues. And Republicans have that same challenge. Can I just point out something to you? So so part of this is the kind of quality of generational forgetting that the Republicans who went through the 90s, late 90s, and got so burned and scarred by what happened. Some of them didn't feel scarred. Some of them enjoyed it, but scarred by Dan Burton. Their names are Newt Gingrich. Dan Burton and, and Newt Gingrich lost his job. They, yeah, but does they he don't, still return to it as the They don't want to impeach. They don't want to do it. What will happen if the, if Hillary Clinton is elected president, it's very likely she'll be impeached in her first term. It is certain. I guarantee you here, Hillary Clinton, if she serves two terms as president with a House Republican House majority, will be impeached by the House. I write it down, seal it in an envelope. It will definitely happen. This, will she have to do something for that no, to happen? Doesn't no, it doesn't matter. Any, they will find something she will have done. There's just too much Maybe they'll impeach her up. for Whitewater. Yeah, maybe. 
Let's move on to our sponsor today. It's Harry's.com, which brings you excellent shaving, excellent razors, excellent blades and handles right to your door. You do not have to go to the store. You don't have to wait for them to unpack the cabinet. You don't have to, like, saw through the stupid safety packaging and cut your hand open, as I did last time I tried to get through some of that, whatever that, that stuff is called. And they provide very elegant razors. My blade handle is this beautiful Dutch orange, even though the the products are made, the blades are made in Germany by the same people who made the German World Cup team, I think. The blades are half the price of competitors. It's very convenient, right to your door. The night before I was I was stepping down as slate editor, I had a very nice shave. I took off all the nice, the mucky parts around my beard with my Harry's razor. It was very satisfying. So if you go to harrys.com, use the promo code POLITICAL, you can save $5 off your first purchase. That's harrys.com. Use the promo code POLITICAL. You looked at me like I haven't shaved in a couple of days since, since then. then. Yeah. yeah, but that. Well, no, was, I also you just uh, just razors in the night and the day before you announced that you were stepping down. It, it was suddenly I leapt uh, to an image. It was that, safe. It's a safety yeah. razor, John. It's, it is a safety it's, razor. It's not old time. That was like the happiest, sweetest conference call ever. Everyone oh yeah, so no, the whole thing was it was dubby. one huge sort of orgy of of plots, love and nostalgia for like twenty four hours. Yeah, even I was nostalgic for plots. <laughs> <laughs> It's Thursday, which means it's time for another Elizabeth Warren bubble. The Massachusetts senator, who is the tribune of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, the scourge of the banks, is being touted again as a possible Hillary Clinton challenger and as the voice of the populist wing of the Democratic Party. She campaigned in West Virginia this week for the Democratic underdog in the Senate campaign there. She also had a student loan reform bill fail abjectly. So, John, why why is there this uh, another Warren bubble now? I think it is the product of two, three things. One is that she is an effective stump speaker for some of these Senate candidates, and she's starting to get on the road. Barack Obama is off the table. He can't basically go to anywhere um, because he's a you know because he's unpopular. He stirs up the Republican base. Elizabeth Warren. Could, and Hillary is not going anywhere. She is going yeah. somewhere later in the fall. She's trying to milk her book tour for the moment. And so Warren falls into a into this kind of gap period. She's very popular with the base and all the candidates running, even if they're in a red state like West Virginia, need to raise money and, and get the base out. And she's not such a – she's not a Ted Kennedy kind of figure yet or a – or kind of Tom DeLay or Newt Gingrich, that the opposite party can raise money off of her. They're trying to be sure when she went into West Virginia to campaign this week. The Republican Party put out press releases talking about her position on on EPA regulations and what that would do to coal production in the state. And the same is true in Kentucky. But she's not – she's worth more to the Democrats than she is as a bogeyman to the Republicans. I think the other two reasons quickly are that, one, there's still some portion of the media that um, would love to see a fight, love to see two women contest the Republican uh, sorry, contest the Democratic nomination. Would that be a cat fight, John? Um, I, Is that what you would you, have in You mind? might say that. I, I couldn't possibly. Um, I can't think of two women who are less catty, actually. And I think she is a genuine, like, people really genuinely do get stirred up by her, a portion of the Democratic Party does. Hillary Clinton is still incredibly popular in the Democratic Party, an NBC poll 
out this week had her numbers, her favorability in Iowa. It was 89 percent in in New Hampshire. She's liked better than flannel. Ninety four percent of New Hampshire Democrats like her. Did they actually poll her next to flannel? No, but I'm sure it's true. Um, So she's wildly popular. But there's something about the Warren thing. So this isn't a serious presidential. I have an argument for why she should run, which we can talk about later. But that's enough in a slow month of July to get people talking about her. Why should she run? Talk about that now. I've talked enough already. But the quick argument is this. If you're the Democratic race is basically on track to be a coronation of Hillary Clinton that will make the Democratic race sort of safe, risk free and basically will have very little impact in much in the way that Hillary Clinton's book did. If Warren ran, she wouldn't win, but she would shake things up. She would force Clinton to articulate her views. If you're a liberal, you like that because either Warren would get elected, which she won't, but it would pull Clinton to the left. If you're a Clinton fan, it's good to have competition because it sharpens her up for the fall. It means that the, the general election doesn't start early. If it's a coronation, the general election starts today and every Republican attacks Clinton, but she has no Republican to mount her counterattack against. It also forces her to come up with bright, clear lines about issues of the day, which include specifically how to help the economic situation in the middle class. And articulating that in a way that you're forced to in a competition gives you strong talking points for the general election in the fall, which would not happen absent a a primary. And if you're a Republican, you love it because, A, the Democrats will eat each other up or expose themselves to be the one world or socialist that they are. Or if Rick Santorum is really right and the Republicans can only survive as a presidential party if they pitch to the middle class, then an argument about the middle class on the left, which is about corporate power and who gets what in a system where the powerful and the wealthy seem to have an advantage over regular folks, provides an opportunity for a Republican who has a different set of answers to that same problem to come in and say, hey, these guys are having a fight over here. While you're listening, here are my specific ideas about how to fix that, which provides them with an opportunity to get into a conversation they might not otherwise get into. So it seems like everybody can have a good time. What's in it for Elizabeth Warren? She gets to fight for the ideas she believes in, which is that, you know, the the system is tilted and that banks and corporate interests have too much power. And she would be running against a candidate who arguably has uh, the most ties of of maybe any candidate out there to Wall Street and and the financial world. She'd pull Hillary. I mean, that's the Kevin, the point of the Kevin Roos piece, kind of Kevin Roos, excellent business journalist, wrote an argument saying, well, Warren has had basically no success as a as a legislator. Her bills have all died. Uh, All two of them. Well, yeah, she's only done two and they've both been unsuccessful, but she's playing a kind of long game where she's trying to change the terms that people talk about the Wall Street and finance because it's it's way to the right now that both parties are are highly captured by the Wall Street and banking industries and that she which if she can change the center of gravity she can she can force Hillary left she can force the Democratic Party left and thus ultimately even without another catastrophic economic and banking collapse as we had in 2008 even without that she might be able to actually get real change because what is acceptable within the bounds of debate would have been moved to the left, which is an argument. I don't know. It makes sense. Emily, what do you think that the Democratic Party has decided that Barack Obama's presidency has not been successful because he was an outsider reformer or because he wasn't an outsider reformer enough? I hear a lot of complaining that he wasn't an outsider enough, that he kind of promised that but then was afraid to take on Republicans. The sort of frustration that he believed in his, you know, we are 
politics is no more. We are surmounting these earthly barriers. They believed in that for way too long and that that was the flaw and that Hillary is an antidote because she's much more of a realist and she will know that there's no way to work with them from the beginning and proceed onwards, which is different from the, the idea way, that she's way, the establishment. Yeah. Con- yeah, well, I think they're both of these narratives are out there. Right? This is why I love the Elizabeth Warren candidacy, because it would get us to this question very quickly, which is Hillary Clinton in a fight, presumably with Elizabeth Warren would say, OK, yeah, fine. You've got all these nice ideas, professor. But, you know, I've lived and fought in this world. And so it would quickly get us to a conversation about what does that mean? What is the political power of a veteran bring to the argument. And we've had somebody who was, who'd never run anything, come to town with a bunch of great, wonderful ideas, and that ran up against some hurdles in Congress. So Hillary Clinton would say, well, I have this special skill set. Now, would she argue, I'm a street fighter, and therefore I will fight these guys? Or the argument she has been making has been, you've always got to try to basically build bridges with Congress. And even if they're thwarting you at every turn, you just keep going back, you keep sitting down with them. And so it's an actual kind of more pragmatic than Obama, implicit in it is a critique that Obama stopped trying. And it's closer to what her husband did, which is when faced with, you know, pretty strong opposition, still got some deals done with the other party. Do you guys buy that theory or do you think that this Congress is just fundamentally different than what the Congress that Bill Clinton faced or the George W. Bush faced? Oh, it's... Sorry, Emily, I'm stepping on you. Well, no, you've taught us this on many an occasion. It's fundamentally different. And yeah, you can argue on the margin that Obama didn't invite enough people to dinner. But at the end of the day, that's not really what happened. That explains his White House. Yeah, it's a totally different Congress. Now, what has not been tried, and this is why if you were a liberal, you would be nervous about Hillary Clinton, is that there is a strong belief, bringing it back to this president, among Republicans, that if they take control of Congress, this president, in, in uh, hoping to have some kind of legacy and to go out on a high note, would be amenable to an, a big budget deal again. And oh that basically, God. we've had like six months where we didn't talk about this, I know, John. I know, I know. I'm not going to talk <laughs> about it. But here's Stop the it. here's the thing Stop that it. hold on. Stop. But this goes, David. <laughs> so you're you're not the boss of me. Um, the uh-huh. uh, uh, that was almost as bad as your pot pun. Um, so the argument is that he would sell out Democrats on on entitlements, and that would be a worry from the left about Hillary Clinton. That if she, when she talks about working with Congress, that that's the code language that she would not just go to dinner with them but actually start giving them things to get deals and that that might somehow lead to deals, but it would mean that progressives would would end up giving away stuff that they don't like. That's, and maybe that's she'd one worry. particularly sell out to Wall Street, which is why we need Elizabeth Warren there holding the banner, making sure that at least we understand what's happening to us. So make a prediction, Emily. Is Elizabeth Warren going to run for president in 2016? I mean, I always figured there wasn't enough incentive for her to do it, that she has a good job and why would she want, oh, it's such a mess and a fuss. But John kind of convinced me, I mean, if she really is more interested in her ideas as opposed, I mean, it must be frustrating. What is she going to get passed in the Senate that she's really excited about? Probably very little or nothing. So maybe then you have the attitude that you take this microphone, you make it as big as you possibly can, and you use your personal appeal to try to get people to pay attention to financial reform and the power of the banks. John? Emily's argued better than I did why, if you really did care about the ideas, you would you would participate in the race 
I mean, it's sort of what people used to say about Newt Gingrich, which is that he was never going to get the Republicans would say he's never going to get the nomination, but I'm glad he's in the race, which is to kind of till the soil, have these conversations out loud. And if you're Elizabeth Warren, you would have an enormous megaphone because everybody would be standing around going, well, we got a Democratic race now. And they would cover it, even though the polls would show Hillary Clinton. And, and by the way, it's not just that people like Hillary Clinton because she's a big name. There are a lot of Democratic voters who think Hillary Clinton would work hard and fight for middle class voters which, who they care about. I mean, they, Elizabeth Warren isn't the only person in the world who cares about people all up and down the economic strata. So she has genuine support too, which would make it very hard for Elizabeth Warren, but it would be an exciting debate to cover. Slate Plus, you've heard about it. It's our new membership offering. It gets you ad-free podcasts with bonus segments as as on this show. You get no pagination on Slate itself. And we're doing all kinds of cool extras. Like this week, I picked my favorite stories, all-time Slate stories, or some of them. God, there's so many. But I did that for, for a segment that we did. And one thing that we're doing for Slate Plus is a limited edition podcast series about Orange is the New Block, Black. Not Orange is the New Block. Orange is the New Black. You say uh, block you can build things out of. It's a, you can build on this podcast. It's exclusively for Slate Plus members, and it takes a deeper look at the show's hugely entertaining second season, looks at the economics of it, looks at LGBT issues, and much more. And we've dragooned some really fun people in to come talk to us. So Adam Davidson of Planet Money, who's one of my favorite talkers on anything, is on one of the shows. And Dan Savage of Savage Love is on. So if you sign up for Slate Plus, you can start listening to that today, as I did. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest plus, or you can email me directly, david.plots at slate.com to get the best offer. Deborah Harrell, a 46-year-old single mom in South Carolina, has been arrested for endangering the life of her nine-year-old daughter. Harrell works at McDonald's, and she had been taking her daughter to work with her. The daughter sat in the restaurant, played on the family laptop on the McDonald's Wi-Fi. The laptop was stolen from their house, and the child asked to go spend the day on a busy playground instead. Her mother gave her a cell phone and dropped her off. And after three days of this, another parent spoke to Harold's daughter, asked her where her mom was, or she said her mom was at work. This parent reported it to the cops. The cops arrested Harold, took her daughter into the foster care system. How much rage can we work up? Do we all, <laughs> I mean, do we, do we all agree? <laughs> do we all agree? <sighs> Emily, let's you you go. Just you start with the rage, and then it will infect us here in this. Well, in the South. I mean, there's just this is so upsetting on so many levels. You have all of the obvious race and class problems, where it's impossible to imagine this happening to a white affluent mom. The amazing. I don't horror actually. Of I don't agree being, with that. I don't agree oh, with that. I do. I, 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 don't the I don't think they would have taken the kid. I don't think they would have taken the kid. They wouldn't have put a, that they, child into no, foster care. Arrested no way. It, if this is my kid, does this kid okay. go into foster care? All right, we'll care? continue. None. Yes. Yeah. Maybe down at the police station, sitting and waiting for you. Yeah. Maybe. And then the idea of putting a kid into foster care, whose mother is obviously concerned about her and trying to take care of her, is its own kind of horror show. And then you have this problem of criminal charges and making it even harder for Deborah Harrell to keep her job, get a better job, etc. I have another rant about this, and it has to do with summer and the way in which the summer is this wondrous, precious time for middle class and upper middle class children whose parents can afford to send them to camp. And 
just a wasteland for a lot of poor kids who don't have easy access to good summer programs and are kind of bored and restless and left to their own devices. And this seems to me like it is exactly falling into that space. During the school year, this girl, I'm sure, goes to school like my kids. But in the summer, you know, my kids can be off at camp and this girl doesn't have that opportunity. And I just like that makes me so upset as the another subtext for the story. Right. And and then if you have a park, which might be one way to provide a place for kids who can't go to school to hang out, like you can't even hang out in the park. Right. Or at least not unsupervised. Do we think, though, that it's a good idea to leave your nine-year-old unsupervised in the park for the whole day? Because I don't. I will say I don't. It's not a great idea if you if you have choices. If you don't have yes. choices, it seems like a pretty – it doesn't seem like the worst place to leave right. somebody. Better than leaving them indoors without – Yeah. Or not around have other looked, people. Have we looked at the statute in, in in South Carolina about whether it would have been endangerment to leave her home alone all day? Well, the statute in South Carolina, like the statute everywhere, is very vague. It's about, you know, being reasonable, providing reasonable supervision under the circumstances, which is always what these laws say. So, like, if you leave, you know, I have definitely left my 11-year-old home for some amount of time. And the jokes about, well, how much, how far long could that last for before you get in trouble? There's no answer to that question because it's all very discretionary from the point of view of the state. We don't really need to get to this because it's been made. has been made. But one reason why everyone's so outraged is, oh, what if the child had been abducted? And of course, we just have to point out there are so few stranger abductions in this country as you as you might as well say none. There are not none, but there are just so few. One, someone calculated that if you leave a child alone in a car, the child would have to wait there for <laughs> 750,000 years before the child would be abducted by a stranger. So this is where it well, gets back it's to so the- much more. Right. It's so much more dangerous to drive around with your kid in the car just based on the number of car accidents than it is to leave a child alone in the park. Doesn't this go back to Emily's original point about race and class, which is that it's not the thing itself for which the mother was arrested, but it was it was tip of the iceberg. So if the kid's being left alone in a park all day, then untold horrible other things are a part of her life, too. That that sign of you don't have discrete negligence that it's... Can we also say... What person called the police on oh, this kid? Oh, like, no, no, no. This is – oh, good. This is where we're going to have a fight. This is so awesome. my feeling this about is that awesome. person, whoever he or she is, was that you could ask with concern what's going on and then maybe you try and help. How is calling the police helping oh, instead of totally like wrong. maybe seeing oh, if oh, there's some way Emily, you could help supervise this is or where there's some smug, other private resolution This is resolution where your smug you self-righteousness offer. ends because I, I wanted to pose this question to you guys. You are at a – let's say you go to a playground. You go there in the morning with your child. You go there. You, you hang out. You see a kid playing – alone. You go back. At lunchtime, you left something at the park. You go back, check. Oh, the kid is still there playing alone. There's not really, doesn't seem to be attached to any adults. You go back in the evening. The kid is still there playing alone. It is, would be bizarre, bizarre in this world not to ask yourself questions about this child. Yeah. Well, bizarre not, not to, to talk to the child. David. And bizarre when the child either. tells you her mom is at work or is vague about it, not to think, like, maybe I have a responsibility yeah. to do something. Well, there's a middle ground. call the police, David. That's call, the part that I'm arguing what, with. I am with you, you up go, until what, that. You, to try to you talk assume, to the parent to see what's well, happening. No, okay, you, you, assume that the police are, you assume that the police are, I assume, in this society, maybe I'm wrong, the police are kind of the good guys. They're going to help sort it out, make sure the kids are Why okay. do you assume that? Well, I tell my what, children never to speak to the police if they can possibly avoid it. The police cause trouble. 
Oh my, oh my god. god. That is the most oh. interesting thing I've ever learned no, about I'm you. I'm completely really serious about that. The police are, you treat the police with the utmost care and you try to keep them as far away from your life as you possibly can. That's so interesting, Emily. That is Wait. so interesting. That's how That's I feel about have have You lie to the police when the police <laughs> We have, have to have a show on that, at, on that entire uh, subject. I do not think in a situation where you are worried about an unsupervised kid that calling the police is any kind of wise move unless you think there is evidence of oh. criminality oh in my danger. Gosh. If you think a kid is being abused, that you might a, call the Department of Children's kind of, Services. I would of, never call the police the kind on of a kid per- in this paranoia, situation. Anti, I would try to Anti-authority paranoia. Which paranoia, you, you're par- yeah. You're apparently, who? no, you're vindicated in this case, but the the wrong that was done here was done by the cops. It wasn't done by the parent who called the cops. I totally disagree. I think this is exactly a situation of how we don't have enough just private trying to talk to people and work problems out in this society. And everybody goes straight to the red alert alarm system and to government authority instead of trying to just ask a simple question and talk to someone and find out what's but going what's, on. The kid says, sorry, John, the kid says, and my mom is at smug work. five minutes ago, by the, the way. The kid says, just, the mom's at work, because it's just a convenient adjective that I keep, it's like lodged in a corner <laughs> yeah, of my brain. So sorry. It's pretty Whenever much Emily the one that bugs me I, just the most. Most. <laughs> I just say smug. It doesn't have anything to do with the content of what you said. The, the... Uh, okay, good. The, the uh... <laughs> I now oh, you, you've inter- you've, 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 you've oh, broken him. the circuit. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. Couldn't they have gone up to the nine-year-old girl and said, so where, what's up with you? And she would have said, well, I have a cell phone. My mom's at work. That that would have been, in terms of going back to the community, the community standards here first. And as a parent, would you have said, you might have said, well, can you call your mom just to make sure it's okay or something? But you wouldn't have necessarily gone to the police. You would have had maybe a right. few it stages takes a before. village. This yeah, is no, the community does, look, not, not taking not, care of itself. Emily, I'm not saying that Also, I want to know the race of I'm that person I'm not saying there isn't an alternative. I'm not saying that there wouldn't have been better actions. But let's say the person had seen the kid there for three straight days, never, you know, never seen a phone come out, never seen her call her mom, Never, you know, never seen her have a snack or. But we don't have any evidence the kid was complaining or crying no, or that anyone evidence. tried to no, speak to this mother about what was happening. As somebody who, who whose natural instincts would be like, I don't have the capacity to deal with this. I don't know this mother. I don't know where she works. And oh, gee, I think I'll call the police on her and, and trust them to figure it out. I, why would you ever do that? Because the police. You live the, in a city where the police sometimes make mistakes and do bad things. Of course the police never, make like, mistakes and do bad things. But I certainly trust the police more than I trust like random human beings to try to sort out what is what's going on with a kid and a make sure a kid being. has a this safe. This is a girl's mom. Like this happened without any conversation with this girl's mother to find to judge what kind of decision making and judgment she had. What do they call? What, what do they call the mom? They call the mom, and the mom is like you know because she's she's working the fryer. Or she's like her you know she's serving customers. She cannot answer the phone that second. I mean, That's an interesting question, but it didn't happen in this case. We don't. There's no evidence about the mom. Know. She's absent you're, from you're, that decision. Your kind of reflexive assumption that the cops should not be involved in this seems to me totally off base. The problem is not that the cops are involved. The problem is that the law is the law is an ass in this case. The law is no. Is vague, the law is, and the law is out the, there to be the prosecutors and the tapped, cops have but used it in the wrong way. It. Yeah, but the the I mean the reason I feel so strongly about this is in all the talks I've given in the last few years about bullying and all the communities I've been in, there is such a nostalgia don't tell an authority for a figure. world Emily's in view which is like don't t- if you're being bullied, do not tell an authority. Don't tell the police if you're being bullied. 
Well, do I not, do if think you've been that attacked, talking to the police is a big problem and leads to a lot more suspensions and expulsions of kids. And there's a lot of evidence that that is, in fact, a big problem with reporting bullying to the police. What I was going to say is that, in part, I think because of that awareness, there's a lot of nostalgia among people for a world in which adults kept an eye out for other people's kids and were able to say, hey, you know, your kid was rude or, hey, who is watching your kid in the park? And it all just kind of happened within the community. It was not, you know, something that had to be involved the police or the principal or the whoever, that we just had ways of talking about stuff and working it out. And this really deeply feels to me like an example well, of that. But Emily, well, I agree with you. And if it had been a playground, probably in your neighborhood, there would have been moms who knew, oh, that's that's Bazelon's kid. That's Bazelon's son. Of course, she's actually she's, no. That's but, not true. Well, but anyway, Bazelon's always off on TV. She doesn't have time no, to take care of the kids. It's okay. They can play in the playground. But but not like that. Yeah. So so the prob- <laughs> again, the problem is not the cops. The problem is that there isn't a, that community doesn't exist. So the mother did. The mother doesn't have that community. She did the, not the mother. The the person who reported. The person who reported doesn't have that community. Doesn't know who this child is. Seeing this child. But see, again, I think again, you have the, to reach out beyond do? your own community, David. I really do. I mean, this is. Yes, I don't mean to personalize this scenario. too much, but the park near my house, where my kids occasionally go by themselves, is not actually a place where anyone knows. It's big, and people come from all over the city. It's super diverse. People are, you know, adults are playing basketball, and kids are racing around. And I would have no expectation that someone would recognize my child there. But if I saw a kid who was like different from my kid in class and race doing something I thought was wrong, I would try to go talk to that kid or the parent. It would not occur to me in a million years that calling the New Haven police would be a wise move. Zero. And it's not because I don't, I've, nothing bad has ever happened to me from the New Haven police. But because you lie to them whenever they confront not- you. Well, but city police do not necessarily treat, you know, black families fairly. That That is a safe assumption to make in the world. I'm sorry, but it's true. John, do you want the last word on this? Uh, no, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think you all have uh, taken this as far as it can go at the moment. Right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are neglecting your child, sitting on the porch while your child is off for his fifth day alone at the playground, what are you going to be chattering about, Emily? I am going to be doing penance for... The Slate Political Gap Fest. One of our listeners, Amelia Showalter, did a very compelling data analysis of race and gender on the our dear Slate Political Gap Fest. And she gave us a pass for the fact that we're all white, I think mostly just because she likes the show. And she did recognize, obviously, that there are two men and one woman. But what she did, which was really clever, was to look at all the shows in which we've had guests. And what she discovered was just disastrous from my point of view. I knew that we were going to be terrible in terms of how many people of color who have been guests, which we should talk about. But I had no idea we were so bad about having female guests. And it made me realize this is my blind spot because I just feel like I guess I'm taking care of this and I don't worry about it enough. But it was really upsetting to learn, that, particularly that when I get replaced, we're much more likely to have a woman. But when you guys are, we rarely do. And it all just made me feel like we need to do a lot better. So I don't know. All female, all people of color gab fest may not be coming your way soon, but we are definitely taking this to heart. So thank you, Amelia, for um, calling us on it. Did she do that same uh, analysis for the double X gab fest? No, but she mentioned that it exists and that Slate has podcasts that have other balances. I will say 
not in our defense because I, I, I found it very persuasive. There is no defense. That yeah. Was that since I have become aware of this, since it's been pointed out to me, which is I would date that to maybe two years ago that I really kind of became acutely aware that this was an issue. I never think we should have a show that doesn't have a woman's voice in it. But only because it, like – John and I already sound already get confused. If you have three guys, it makes it even worse. So That's I think we've been better. I think we've been better. Yeah, they don't have any. Those the ladies don't have anything else to add, but just a different. Uh, well, it's Emily different register. who calls them battle axes. I mean, right. honestly, if it weren't fight, for us, fighting battle I know axes. if it weren't for us, all of these terrible gender stereotypes that she propagates would be allowed to flower unchecked. It's true. Uh, it was a real good takedown. Yeah, it was Ms. great. Show Walter. All right, John, what's your chatter? Well, my chatter is a little complicated, but I was, um, you know, the the president had a press conference on Thursday in which he basically said, you know, the world, he was announcing new uh, and increased sanctions on the Russians. And between Russia and Syria and Ukraine and, and Iraq, the world's falling apart. And the president said, you know, it's just a complicated world and it's very hard. And I was reading over a part of The Glory and the Dream, which I try to do every summer, my favorite William Manchester book uh, about uh, the period from um, – I think it's 1942 to 72 or 32 to 72. And I was reminded why America was once considered like this amazing kind of astride the world power. And it wasn't the Second World War, which is what I sort of always had thought about. It was I, I just was reminded of this in reading about the details of the Berlin air, airlift of 1948. So in June 24, 1948, Stalin shuts off, tries to basically create a blockade around Berlin. So – Basically, the United States decides that it's going to airlift goods into Berlin. But this presents this amazing logistical challenge so that basically they figure they have to uh, deliver 4,000 tons of supplies a day, which means that a C-47 would have to take off and land or would have to land every three minutes and 36 seconds around the clock to deliver this. Wow. But the problem is there are only two Airfields, and they can't really even accommodate the C-47. Also, in addition to the goods that need to be delivered, 8,000 tons a day of coal need to be delivered in order for Berlin to stay lit, which means landing one every minute and 48 seconds. It just couldn't be done. So what happened was, first of all, Congress basically appropriated money to pay for bigger planes, so C-54s, which could carry more stuff. So immediately there are 160 – not immediately, but relatively soon thereafter, there are 160 more C-54s. Then the existing airways are elongated by a combination of French, uh, German and American construction. Then they create a new airfield in, in, the, French court, in the French sector. 20,000 Berliners show up to build and work all round-the-clock shifts to build this next airfield so that by – Early 1948, when the siege ended after 15 months, the American allies had logged 277,000 flights, hauling 2,300,000 tons of food, fuel, and medicine. And in this process, 26 Americans were killed, some of them while training in Montana for how to fly in and out of a simulated airfield. So my, the point of all this nonsense is that this was a situation in which there was a huge international problem. And then just sort of the American like massive response kicked in. And it was an easy like problem solution achieved by staying up all night and grunting it out with the help of all the, you know, the Germans who were being blockaded. And all of the problems we have today are, you know, don't allow for such solutions. But it was, it seemed to me, a nice historical contrast to the complexity and sort of frustration of American foreign policy today. Great example. 
I just was thinking, Emily, I did mean smug. I did mean <laughs> smug. Because it, this way in which I'm so morally superior, oh, I would have figured out a solution these other stupid parents wouldn't. That was smug. Oh, my God. I that was not my chatter. You. I was just thinking how clueless you were to think that calling the police on a black family was a good idea. So I'll be smug about that. I feel certain that, that is not a wise choice. Man, you're, are you wearing your no snitching T-shirt, too? <laughs> I don't think this is quite the same as drug dealing. My chatter is I saw Boyhood last night, which is Richard Linklater's new movie. Richard Linklater is the greatest director who has ever lived. This is a movie that's made. It was made over 12 years with a Would child. Would you feel that way if he hadn't cast Julie Delpy, though? He didn't even cast Julie Delpy in this movie. It was Patricia Arquette. I know. Arquette. Patricia Arquette's a pretty good stand-in. But the reason you love Richard Linklater, I think, really no, has to do with made, your love for Julie Delpy. He's made truly five of my favorite movies. He made the it's three true. before movies, before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight, which I think are the greatest trilogy in American film. He made Days and Confused, which is probably the best movie ever made of any sort. And he made School of Rock, which is a wonderful kids movie. Yeah, I love Pretty great movie. Anyway, Boyhood is is a remarkable achievement. You should definitely go see it. Although I I was sort of disappointed. I didn't think it lived, it didn't live up to its hype. And it made me think that art requires, it requires a more specific plan because the movie feels really shaggy. It doesn't know where it's going. And in way, life, you don't know where it's going. And it, it suffers for that. But it's still a remarkable movie. And I think someone should do, make a similar movie, but with an old person. Like you find an actor who's, who's 65 now or 70 now and just watch them from 70 to 90 and try to create something similar. I think that would be amazing. The GabFest is produced by Mike Volo. Our intern is Max Tawney. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Intern Max stirs the pot at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash GabFest, and he tweets at SlateGabFest. You can email us at GabFest at slate.com. Police, just email Emily directly. <laughs> Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and a rating while you're there. You can search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll be back with you next week. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.